Well, thank you once again for the opportunity to share a little bit about missions and from God's Word, what He might say to us. Things we need to be aware of as we pray for missionaries, as we think about going out into the world ourselves, as we think about what God has challenged us to be as evangelical Christians in His world, taking His Word. Does it really matter? What's it really all about? There's a passage that we refer to a lot in my ministry. There's a passage that I talk about a lot of times when I'm preaching. Um, It's a passage you might know very well in your own language. For us, we say, Y Jesús se acercó y les habló diciendo, Todo potestad me es dada en el cielo y en la tierra. Por tanto, id y hacer discípulos a todas las naciones, bautizándolos en el nombre del Padre, y del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo, enseñándoles que guarden todas las cosas que os he mandado. Y aquí estoy con vosotros todos los días hasta el fin del mundo. Amén. And Jesus came near and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. To the very end of the world, amen. And we say that's what we care most about. His last command is our first priority. Someone asked last tax year at the end of tax season, I was listening to these radio Christian tax financial expert guru type guys that was helping everybody get their taxes together. And he said, you know, now that you've kind of finished getting your tax forms all filled out, you've got all of your receipts laid out on the table, you've got your check statements, you've got your uh, credit card statements and all of that there. He said, let's just, let's just think about something for a minute. He said an investigator could take all of those records and reconstruct your life. He could tell you how many children you have, how often you go on vacation, where you go, how many pets you have how often you take them to the vet, which one you use, how many vehicles you have, how often you get them serviced, and what you get done to them on a regular basis. On and on he could go and pretty much reestablish your life. And then he asked, let's say that we live in a country where it is against the law to believe that people around the world need to hear the gospel, that missionaries need financial resources to do the work that God's called them to do that unless you hear the gospel, you are cut off from God, cut off from heaven, cut off from eternal life, and it is absolutely essential that you hear the gospel. If you are accused of believing that, and they were to take your financial records from this past year and try to build a case, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that? We find money, not much, but we find money for everything that we want to do. A.W. Tozer said that every man or woman is as holy as he wants to be. I remember hearing a speaker a few years ago that said he was intentionally 50 pounds overweight for 20 years of his life. And finally he decided he would stop. He said, I say I was intentionally overweight because I've never accidentally eaten anything in my whole life. (laughs) And that's true with everything that we do. At the end of the day, we make decisions. We have priorities. And the question is, what is our priority? Now, the thing that startles me and alarms me a little bit 
is that increasingly as I speak around our convention throughout this country and even around the world, I hear over and over people saying, have you seen those Muslims? They are so sincere when they bow down and they, they put their foreheads to the ground in unison. Tens of thousands out there praying every day, five times a day. When I go to Manhattan to teach, when I come back to LaGuardia to fly out, it's always the time of the afternoon prayer. And virtually all of the taxi drivers in Manhattan are Muslims. And all of them have their taxi stopped. Trunks are open. They get out the piece of cardboard they use for their prayer rugs and they've got them on the ground and hundreds and hundreds of taxi drivers are bowing down toward Mecca saying their afternoon prayers. Look how sincere and how fervent they are in their worship, people say. Surely God's not going to send those people to hell. What about, what about those guys that come around on their bicycles and their little short sleeve white shirts and their ties and they, they knock on their, their, our doors and they have such clean straight teeth and they're so happy and so kind. Surely there's a way for them. Or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses with their little briefcases that knock on our doors on Saturdays and want to talk to us and try to convince us that their way is the right way. Surely there's some other way. A few years ago I was talking with Jerry Rankin about that and it happened to be the year that the tsunami had hit the Asian nations and a quarter of a million people died as one wave washed in and washed back out. And he said he would make the statement over and over in the places where he preached that those, the majority of those people that were blinked off the planet in a moment's time were in unreached people groups. In a moment's time they were here, now they're gone into a Christless eternity. And he said he never once said that, and he said it all the time. That year it was very much on his mind. He said it over and over and over every place he preached around our convention. He said he never once said it that he wasn't taken to task for it after church, and usually by the pastor over a meal after church that day. Surely, Jerry, you think there's some other way for these people to go to heaven when they die. Now, th th it's a creep. It's a, it's a slowly growing reality among us that we have an overdeveloped sense of mercy, and we, we want to think there's got to be a wider hope. That's how it starts. But there's some reality that I want us to factor in to make it even more stark. And there's some numbers. I think it might help us to keep these numbers in mind. Some of you know these numbers already. Some of you could not care less about numbers. That's not how you think. That's not how you get your mind wrapped around truth. But the truth, the numbers, is that about one-third of this planet, over two billion people, have never heard the gospel. Most of them have never even heard Jesus' name. That's over 2,000 millions of people. And that's about half of the world's people groups in terms of people groups. In terms of population, it's about a third of our planet. And every day, about 50,000 people from that group die and go into a Christless eternity. Now, if we could measure time this way, a million years in the future, they will still be in a Christless eternity. And that's a euphemistic, a nice way of saying hell. They are condemned. They are undone. And they have never heard the gospel. Now, before I continue, let me just recognize that there are even some among us that would say, whoa, wait, wait a minute, Brother David, I thought you said they never heard the gospel. That means they never rejected Jesus. It wouldn't be fair for God to send them to hell if they never rejected Jesus, right? 
No, the Bible says that no one goes to hell for rejecting Jesus. We go to hell because we're sinners. And everybody on the planet is a sinner. We are all sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. Paul said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many sins must we commit to separate us from perfect holiness? Just one. It's not the gravity of the sin. It's the holiness of the one sinned against that matters. They're all undone. It's not that the world is filled with neutral people. They're fine until they hear the gospel and reject it, and now they have to go to hell. No, they're all already condemned. Jesus made that very plain. Those who don't have the Son are already under God's wrath. What they need is the gospel. And you might say, well, it's not their fault that they never heard the gospel. It's not God's fault that they never heard the gospel. 2,000 years ago, he told us, take the gospel to the whole world, to all the nations, make disciples of them, and teach them everything that I have commanded. The truth is about 95% of all the seminaries in the United States, about 95% of the student body stays in the United States. And only 5% of the world's population lives in the United States. 5% of our graduates go to the 95% of the world's population. We've got it exactly opposite. And I'm not trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit telling who, tell everyone where they can go and where they have to go and how long they have to stay there. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But I've got to wonder what's going on when about 80% of our pastors pastor within 200 miles of their wife's mama. Who's calling whom, I wonder, sometimes. And I'm not judging anybody. I'm simply saying, if, I will say, in this book that I've written, I think I made mention of earlier, The Missionary Call, it's an it's a emphasis throughout the book that, that Moody publishers pulled out and actually put on the back cover of the book so everybody could kind of know my position. I'm not trying to guilt anybody to go to the mission field. I'd have to go with you and keep guilting you to stay there if I did. What I say, what they pulled out and put on the back of the book is that the highest and best use of anyone's life is to do what God called you to do in the place where he called you to do it. If God has called you to be a housewife in Somerset, you cannot glorify God more by going to Somalia and being martyred for the faith. The highest and best use of your life, what he made you to be and do, is to be a housewife in Somerset. If he's called you to be a carpenter in Louisville, you cannot glorify him more by doing something else that he didn't make you to be and do. I'm not trying to guilt you into doing something. I am trying to get you to ask the question, is he calling me to go? Is he calling me to give more? What really are the needs? We've got 6,913 major languages in the world. Now, those major languages can be divided into what we call dialects. Some dialects don't even understand each other. I was sharing earlier that we have about eight dialects of Quechua in Ecuador. And Ecuador is a little country the size of Alabama and Mississippi put together. We have eight dialects of Quechua. Five of them don't understand each other. One guy from one county can be speaking Quechua in another county, and they don't understand what he's saying. So is that, do we have eight languages, or do we have five, or is that just one called Quechua? Well, this number, 6,913 languages, it counts all those as one. So really, the experts say we can divide that into about 12,000 languages and dialects in the world. If we can just get our heads around that. 
12,000 languages and dialects. We only have 420 Bibles available. We have about 1,700 adequate New Testaments. But there are thousands of languages that don't have a single word of the scriptures in their language. How can they call on somebody they've not believed in? And how can they believe in somebody they have never even heard of? Now, someone would say to me, but it's a big planet. There are a lot of people. There are not that many of us. We're trying. We're doing the best we can. You remember, just before Moses died, Joshua was appointed to go across the river at flood stage. We mentioned that this morning. And, and I said, you know, he had to go across on faith, and it did take great faith. And they even exercised that great faith. Remember when they marched around the walls of Jericho and that unbelievable miracle happened where the walls just caved in? Joshua was tasked with one responsibility. That was to conquer the promised land for God's people. He had the promises of God, the people of God, the presence of God. This is your task, Joshua, go do it. Israel wasn't a big place. It's still not. It's about the same size, about the same footprint. If you had a straight highway, you could drive from the top to the bottom in a little over three hours. You could drive from one side of Israel to the other in a little over an hour and a half. Some of you could probably do it a lot faster than that, but that's how often it should, that's about how far it should take, right? Here he is, an old man in Joshua 13.1, and the Lord shows up and says, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. I know when I first started reading passages like that, I was like, come on, Joshua, what are you doing? I mean, God's given you a task. Go in there and do it. But then I remember the Lord gave us 2,000 years ago a task, and how are we doing with that? Half of the world's people groups have never heard the gospel. A third of the world's population has never heard the gospel. And yet in 1896 in Atlanta, there was this guy mixing together this stuff in his lab. Water, flavoring, coloring, sugar. He came up with the stuff you're supposed to drink, called it Coca-Cola. But he didn't do so well that first year because it cost him $70 to make that stuff and he only sold $50 worth. And a $20 loss in 1896 was a pretty good loss when you're just starting out. A few years later, a guy figured out how to put tops on bottles and take it away from the soda fountain so you could take it home or take it on picnics. Began to do a little better. Well, here we are 116 years later, and the Coca-Cola logo and product is recognized by 94% of the people on the planet. One time, another missionary and I went out into the jungle in Ecuador. We drove as far as you could drive where the road just stopped. We left our car there. We got in a dugout canoe, and we headed out. Two or three days out the river, just straight on out toward the Amazon, we stopped where there was a community. These people said we could sleep there in their community on their little platforms because you don't want to sleep on the jungle floor at nighttime. Bad things happen to good people. So we were glad to have that. They were very nice. And they said, hey, we've got a lake back here in the jungle. Nobody can go to it but our people. It's a three or four hour hike, but if you'd like to go, you're welcome to go fish. And they said, well, it's full of boas and alligators and, and uh, piranhas and all kinds of stuff. We said, cool, let's go. So we, we went off. We're walking out through that jungle. We've been gone maybe two or three hours more after all these canoe hours, after all the car hours. So we're way out there. I mean, we're in, we're in the place where the canopy is so thick overhead in broad daylight, it's, it's like twilight. It's like it is outside right now. It's, it was like that under the trees. You could just barely sit, make out objects. It was that dark. Except I looked under a bush, and there was a Coke can. How does that happen? 
It's everywhere, right? Why isn't the gospel? In 116 years, we've done it for profit. But in 2,000 years, we haven't done it in obedience to Christ's command and to bring glory to his name. That's what he charged us to do. That's what he tasked us with as a church. Now, part of the problem, part of this church's problem, as you go into places like Peru, is you're dealing with people who don't think like you think. What we've just realized in recent years is we've been approaching this wrongly. Back in the mid-60s, there was a group of people called the World Council of Churches that had a big worldwide meeting of all the churches in Mexico. And they decided that it was time to celebrate because we had finished the Great Commission. It was over. It was done. Because they had a big National Geographic map and they realized that inside all of those big pieces of real estate with the heavy black lines around them that we call countries, there was a church in every one of those. So we're done, right? Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. And then in 1974, Billy Graham called together all the missionaries and missiologists and pastors and evangelists and anybody that cared about sharing the gospel. He called them to this place in Switzerland called Lausanne. And there, this man came to the podium whose name was Ralph Winter. And Ralph Winter said, folks, not only have we not finished the Great Commission, we've really not even started well. And they said, what, what is he talking about? They thought he had lost his mind. They wrote all kinds of ugly articles about him, said he should have retired 10 years ago and all those kinds of things. But he explained in the Greek, when Jesus gave that great commission that we quoted at the beginning, he said, go and make disciples of panta ta ethne. And he translated the words for them. The word panta is the word that means all. Like a pantheist is someone who believes God is everything and everything is God. Or the pan-American highway goes through all the Americas. That's why it's Pan-American. Or the Pan-American games, all the games are involved, all the nations are involved, all the Americas are involved in those games. Panta, ta is the definite article, the, and ethne, we translate into English as nations. But you even hear our word ethnic in the word, right? That's what it really means. All the ethnic groups, ethno-linguistic groups, all the 12,000 languages that need to hear God's word, all of these thousands of people groups that haven't heard the gospel yet, those make disciples among them. What should we do when we get there, Lord? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's the task that we've been given as a church. And so this wave of people group thinking just splashed down onto the beach of missions and it has been having residual effects ever since. Even the North American Mission Board does not do missions without thinking about people groups. They don't try to plant churches in Toronto. They try to reach the Mandarin speakers in Toronto. They reach out to the Hasidic Jews in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. They're reaching out for people groups. And so we do around the world. But there's been another realization in recent years. Turns out that of all of the people that are on this planet, only one out of every five is what we would call highly literate. That's people like you. Somebody who can take a book you've never seen and you can read it and you can reflect upon it and you can write a response. Only one out of every five people in the world can do that. And we take it for granted that we could do that. We take it so for granted that that's the way we do all of our ministry. And yet most people are what we would call oral culture peoples. 
70 to 80% of the people around the world either cannot read or do not read. Either they are illiterate or they are functionally illiterate. They live their lives as if they don't know how to read, although they might could read their name, they could read the headline on a paper, fill out a job application, but they don't read articles. They didn't decide what they think about Obamacare by reading The Economist magazine. They listen to talk radio. They listen to the, their friends in Sunday school. They listen to their friends at the barbershop. That's how they figured out what they decided and what they wanted to believe about those kinds of things. And that's how they learn new information. And yet 90% of all of our tools for evangelism, discipleship, and leadership training require high literacy. Less than 10% have been prepared for people who don't live their lives that way. So it is no wonder when we go into these other countries on mission trips and even missionaries who live there, who spend their days giving out tracts, the people may very gladly receive it. You may see them staring at it, looking at the pictures as they turn page by page, but it doesn't sink into their brain. You know, you can even get a PhD in this stuff called ethnocognition now. It just talks about the way people groups think. We're beginning to understand they don't process information like we do. We're beginning to understand that in 1455, when there was this really amazing invention called the Internet, no, it wasn't the Internet, because Al Gore wasn't even born yet, it was called the Gutenberg Press, but it had the same impact on the world then that the Internet has had on, had on our world. It changed everything, because in Jesus' day, when he was walking around the shore of Galilee, only about 7% of the world of his day was at that high literate stage. Most of the people were still oral culture. At the time of the Reformation in the early 1500s, still 10% of Europe and only 10% of Europe was highly literate. Everybody else was still oral culture. But that was when the Gutenberg Press came around. Why did that change everything? Because he began to print what it would take a team of monks two years to print, to write up a Bible, to copy a Bible. He would be churning them out. Bibles, treatises about theology, sermons, masses, all of this kinds of information, Christian information, he was churning out right and left. It began to, that's why the Reformation actually happened. Martin Luther's 95 theses were just concerns he had, but somebody took them when he nailed them up on the castle door. They took, on the, on the uh, Wittenberg door, they took those, they made printed copies of them, and they began to circulate them, and that's what caused the uproar. But the Gutenberg Press meant that anybody could learn how to read now. There was literature available. We could actually get a copy of the Bible in our village. And a friend of mine at the International Mission Board says, since Gutenberg, Christianity has walked on literate feet. To us, literacy and Christianity are the same. I was in Peru and Nazca, down in the desert part, and I was training people like you work with there. All of the church, past, church um, planters, pastors, people who are willing to open their home to have stateside churches come start a church in their home, all were gathered together for this training. And the International Mission Board asked me to come down and do some training for those folks. And so I'm talking to them. I'm telling them some of these basic ideas. And this one little old lady named Fortunata raised her hand and she said, um, but what about me? Can I go to heaven when I die? And I looked kind of confused. And, and I said, the lady next to her saw that I didn't really understand the question. She said, so she said, the problem is we've always been told if you can't read and write, you can't go to heaven when you die. 
And I realized what was going on. Nobody ever said that out loud. But the earlier missionaries wanted them to be able to study the Bible for themselves. Literacy was such a high value for them that what they said was, okay, before we baptize you in the church, we want you to, we're going to do this literacy class too. But what the people understood they were saying, although nobody meant to say this, the people understood, oh, this must be a God requirement. You have to also be literate to be a real baptized church member and to go to heaven when you die. The sadder thing was that with great joy, of course, I'm explaining that your literacy level has nothing to do with whether or not you can go to heaven when you die, but all the pastors and church planners were leaning in to hear the right answer to the question because they didn't know either. So we're realizing these people are not just oral culture because no one's ever taught them to read. They don't want to know how to read. Nobody in their culture has ever read anything. My dad never read. My grandfather never read. There's never been anything written in our language why would I want to know how to read? We say, but now you've got the Bible. But I have to give them the Bible and a desire to read. Wycliffe Bible Translator says, when they come in to begin working with you and you don't even have a language that's reduced to writing, they begin trying to give you that. They learn your language first. Then they start translating it. And then they build a vocabulary. Then they, they build a grammar book. They start doing the translating. And while they're doing the translating, they're teaching you how to read and write so that they'll have readers when they get through. And they say the happiest day of their life is when they can give a completed Bible to a people group. But they said from the day one until they hand you a completed Bible takes 20 to 30 years depending on the language. And we have thousands of languages that don't have the Bible yet. So what do we do? What we're having to do as missionaries is employ techniques, what we call oral strategies, where we come in and we do exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, and then he would preach this expository three-point sermon. No, he never did that. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would tell them something they could hold on to. Jesus would say, there was a man who had two sons. And more than one of his parables begins that way because they could all immediately understand, okay, there's one way and there's another way. A man has two sons. And Jesus presents them this predicament, this problem, this situation that they can readily envision. Instead of preaching a three-point sermon, he would tell three stories to make one point. Luke 15, he talked about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And all three of those stories had the same point. The thing that's lost is precious to the one who lost it, and there's great rejoicing when it's found. Now, I think for those people who are highly literate like you, expository preaching is the very best way to preach truth. That's why I did that this morning. That's the only thing I ever did. Before I knew they called it expository preaching, I thought that was the only kind of preaching there was. That's what I've always done. I never feel like I have anything to say when I'm standing here before what God has already said. I just want to tell you what he said. That's what expository sermon is, unpacking it. But if you don't even have a copy of God's word, and you wouldn't know a verb if it bit you on the leg. It's kind of pointless for me to say. Now, in verse 2, you'll notice Paul uses an aorist tense verb, which means this. They don't know any of that. But what they do understand is a story that they can remember and they can retell. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but how many of you can remember the outline from last Sunday's sermon? Even if you, pre even if you preached it. But we don't have to, do we? We don't have to do that because we jot it down. We have it in our notes. They can't jot anything down. They don't have it in their notes. 
They don't have a, a bulletin where they made their notes. We have to give it to them in a way not only that they can understand it, but in a way that they can remember it and retell it. That's the key. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things that you've heard from me, entrust these things to reliable men who in turn will be able to teach others, who can teach others, who can teach others till Jesus comes back. We have to give it to them in that way. Now, just as we don't remember last Sunday's sermon outline, every single one of us remembers a joke or, a sermon or an illustration or a story that a pastor told years ago. I used to be offended by that. When I'd go into some community, some other country, and they'd say, oh, Brother David, you were here five years ago. I still remember that joke you told. Oh, I think, well, I poured my heart into the exegesis for that sermon. This guy remembers its story, and then I remember I'm the exact same way. That's how God's made us. But I can write stuff down. They can't. So we're realizing, you know what? We've got to try to reach these oral culture people in a way that makes sense to them. And so one of the things that we're doing is beginning to use chronological Bible storytelling. We're beginning to use narrative forms of teaching and repetition and question and answer forms of teaching that they can embrace and understand and that they can perpetuate. I tell people sometimes it sounds offensive, but if all you do is evangelize somebody or teach somebody or train somebody or disciple somebody, You've kind of wasted your time. Rather, I think you need to find the best way to evangelize evangelists and disciple disciplers and teach teachers and train trainers. That is, yes, I do want to evangelize somebody, but I want to instill in them, pour in the very DNA of how they understand Christianity that I'm to share this with other people and give it to them in a way that they can. If I give it to them in a way they can barely remember, much less understand, then they're not going to be able to perpetuate the process. Now, here's some scary news about where we live. I'm not just talking about Peru. 58% of the adult population never reads another, high, another book after high school age. Over 50% of the U.S. adult population today, over 50% of the adults are functionally illiterate. They live their lives as if they didn't know how to read. Although they probably can, they don't, that has nothing to do with their everyday life. A third of high school graduates never read another book. 42% of college graduates never read another book. 80% of U.S. families did not buy or read a book last year. And 57% of all books are not read to completion. Most readers do not get past page 18 in a book that they've purchased. I don't know if that speaks about the readers or the writers, but the problem is in the U.S., we're not the highly literate culture we once were. Many of you in this room can remember the day when we would write letters to people. They don't write letters anymore. We've lost the art of literature, following a train of thought for long bodies of information. And so when we're dealing with evangelism, especially in other cultures, we have to take that into account. And when I say that, I don't mean going across the world. Maybe it's going across the street or across the breakfast table. In the United States of America today, the average United States citizen spends four hours watching television, three hours listening, radio or iPod or something on their commute or something like that, and only 14 minutes reading, and that's usually a magazine. We're not readers like we once were, and yet the way we do Christianity 
depends upon literacy. We've got to change if we're going to reach the world today. We've got to change if we're going to reach the world around the world. When I think about the challenge that's before us, I think about my classes. They come to me expecting that everyone will love to read the way they love to read. They're frustrated that some of their church members don't read like they do, even when they can. They just don't like to read. One of my students asked me, he said, Brother David, I, I have tried my best to share the gospel with my mom for 13 years. She has, she's rejected everything I've tried. Roman Road, Four Spiritual Laws, Faith, Eternal Life, EE, everything I've tried, she's turned down. What can I do? And probably to my shame, I should repent of this, I just was sort of half-heartedly said, well, try chronological Bible storying. Just tell the Bible stories to her and unpack those, help her to understand them. Just where you go visit with somebody one time a week and share a Bible story about creation, the fall, Abraham and Isaac, all the way up to the cross. He said, okay, I will. So I didn't think anything about it. I didn't see him for about a year and a half. So I'm on campus. I said, hey, Alan, whatever happened to your mom? He said, that's right. I didn't see you anymore. He said, you know, I called her and I said, Mom, I want to come over and meet with you. I got some stuff about school I need to do. I need to just tell you a story. She said, okay. What mom doesn't want to meet with her son? So he came over. He sat down. And he, they ate lunch. And he said, okay, here's the story. He told the story of creation. He said, now, what do you think that means to us? She said, well, I don't know. I guess if God made everything, he's the boss. He makes all the rules. And they just talked about that for a little while. He said, well, I need to come back next week and do another story. So he came back the next week. He told the story of the fall into sin. And they went through the same process. The next week he came back and told another story. And they just walked through the Old Testament, what God thinks about sin, what God thinks about yielding his glory to another, all the way up till they got to the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And I said, well, what happened? He said, when I got to the cross, she did too. He said she was born again. She was baptized in our church. She's one of the most faithful members we have. He said she's very highly literate. She just had her walls up, and she didn't want to hear it. And every time I tried to share it, she had all her defenses ready. When I offered her something to read, she didn't have time to read it. But when she heard the gospel in a way that made sense, the Lord changed her life. Now, if that's true here in these United States... How much more true is it around the world? Let me just leave you with a challenge. As you think about going to the places God's calling you, or your church, or working with your people even here in this community, but especially in Peru, factor these things in. Don't take just what works here. Don't just go down with a bunch of literature. Don't just go down to preach three-point expository sermons. Go down there with a message and a method that will change their lives and that they can use to change other lives under God for his glory and the advance of his kingdom. It's been a great joy for Mary and I to be with you today and to share these moments with you. You've been wonderful hosts. I'm very appreciative to your pastor and your pastor's wife, the pastoral team that you have here. The weather committee was wonderful today. Um, pray for us as we go back. Pray for us in our ministry. Uh, we try to take teams. If any of you are ever interested in going with any of us, we would love to talk with you about that. If any of you are interested in seminary, please call on me there. But I am here to serve, and I want to pray for you, leave you in God's hands, and ask you to continue praying for us as well. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word and for your presence here. We thank you for the challenge that we have. Because we know, Lord, that the challenge comes with the promise of your presence. We know that you're faithful to your promises. Lord, we look over our shoulder. We realize all of our greatest fears. You have protected us. All of the difficulties, all the challenges, all the dark nights of the soul, you have brought us through. And even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we thank you, Lord, that your word says you take us through the valley of the shadow of death. And you don't leave us there. We thank you that you've given us now a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And you've given us a beautiful gospel to take. Lord, we are not ashamed of your gospel. We do know that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But, Lord, they must hear to believe. So use us toward that end. We worship you. We love you. We just pray, Lord, that you would use us so that others would too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.